right, last time we were together, we took a bird's eye view of the book of Jonah to set the stage for the next few weeks of our study, sort of a 30,000 foot perspective. And I hope that through the vantage point, you grabbed onto the fact that this book is really not strictly about Jonah per se, but it's about God in pursuit of not only Jonah, the prodigal prophet, but of all of his children who are prone to wander. And that includes me and you. In fact, I began with an illustration that exposed us to the undeniable truth that for all intents and purposes, Jonah is us. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. As the old 18th century Robert Robinson hymn goes, and I charge you to remember two things from Jonah's experience last week from James McDonald. He said, the longer your rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back. And the second thing is that God is relentless in his pursuit of us. Now, a journey through the book of Jonah is an adventure into the heart of God, a heart that beats with the rhythm of the truthful reality that God is a God who reigns sovereign, who radically loves his children, and who relentlessly pursues them to the ends of the earth. And while God surely wants us to obey his call, more than that, he wants us to adopt his heart. Because people matter to God, all people. We talked about that last time. So let's look at Jonah here. I'm going to continue on where we started last week. We're not going to get too much farther this week, but next week we're going to take a, lot, a much bigger chunk of the book. Verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and was, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Let me just recap a little bit of what I said last week with the first thing here in the first two verses as we're looking at the inescapable call of Jonah. And the first thing we see in verse 1 is the commission here that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai, the word means dove. That's what Jonah's name means. And as we saw, Jonah enjoyed the status of a prophet who spoke God's truth and a servant who did God's will. And last week, we learned from the only other place in the Old Testament where he's mentioned in 2 Kings 14 that he prophesied something good there. And it came true, which certainly underscored his credibility as a prophet or a mouthpiece for God. He was enjoying the comfort of a nation that was at the height of its prosperity. And maybe that was the problem. Maybe Jonah was too comfortable. Maybe too comfortable is not even scratching the surface of it. But in the midst of this, God interrupts him, interrupts his plans, interrupts his ministry, interrupts his foreseeing of the future, maybe even his vision for retirement. I can understand that right about now, in time in my life. But I've been reading and researching and studying for this series. I find myself being uncomfortably challenged 
in every area, and maybe you will be as well. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes for a minute. Here you are, you're enjoying some success in your career, in your ministry maybe. You're kind of known and appreciated. You've been around for a while. You feel secure. You're settled. You're content. But then you come to church one Sunday, and the Word of God interrupts your comfy Christian life. And you feel God's hand tapping you on the shoulder. Or maybe it involves leaving your home or the people that you love to do something that you never dreamed of doing and nothing about this prospect is attractive to you. In fact, seems absolutely contrary to everything that you have planned for your life. The sense of loss you feel is quite overwhelming to you. You're nervous, your heart's pounding. It's like all the music in your day has stopped. But you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's God. No question about that in your mind. You feel that tug of the Holy Spirit and you just can't shake him off. Pastor Colin Smith rightly says, if you enjoy what God has given you now, you will not find it easy when he calls you to something new. Maybe for you it's not about leaving your home. Maybe it's about staying there. Staying in it and dealing with some very hard stuff with some antagonistic so-called Ninevites that live right next to you. Maybe it's as simple as going across the street to a neighbor that you're at odds with. Maybe it's a hurtful, hateful family member that needs to hear the word from your lips, repent, and the fact that God will judge their behavior if nothing changes in their life, but that he also loves them enough to send you to him. You see, when God interrupts us, we often discover that our comfort is more important and our obedience more conditional than we could have imagined. Again, Colin Smith pinpoints the issue when he says that when God interrupts your life, you know what he does? He breaks the idol. He breaks the idol. When God calls you to something new, he may indeed unveil a thinly veiled selfishness at the heart of your devotion to Christ. Ouch. That's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus did with the rich young ruler? Put his finger right on the very thing that was his idol? And that's what God's doing with Jonah here. And then it hits me. What's God doing to me? What's he up to with you? Jonah was about to be uprooted and upended. God wanted Jonah to go straight into the heart of Nineveh, a place he didn't want to go, the great city, 550 miles northeast of Palestine, populated by over a half million people. But worse than that, Nineveh was the home of the enemy. So God calls and he tells Jonah, hey, Jonah, get up, go, and cry out against these people. 
I love the way Ray Pritchard puts it. He says, it's amazing, isn't it, how just one sentence can change your life? One sentence in the Bible. One phone call can change your life forever, can it? Some of you have received those kinds of phone calls. Especially when it's from God, it can change your life forever. Every one of us has a Nineveh of sorts, don't we? Uh, Did you identify yours last week when I challenged you? Why would God send Jonah, or us for that matter, into such a hard place? Look at verse 2. Rise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And as I said last week, the translation of that in the Hebrew is, the evil of their sin is constantly in my face. That's basically what the Hebrew means. God doesn't take them out. God doesn't send fire from heaven upon the people of Nineveh. He doesn't visit them with the bubonic plague. Instead, he sends Jonah. Why do you suppose he did that? Well, as we said last week, he did it because people matter to God. Even the worst sinners in rebellion matter to God because God's hatred of sin is surpassed only by God's love for people. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square inch of the entire domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. He's sovereign over all of it, isn't he? He created all of it, didn't he? And he loves it. What does Romans 10 say? Romans 10, verse 14. Just dawned on me this morning as I was going over this message that Romans 10, 14 really speaks to what's going on here. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's what was going on right here. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked or anyone who dies for that matter, but rather that they turn from their wicked way and live. That's what it says in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23. God loved the people of Nineveh, but God also loved Jonah. And both were in rebellion. Both of them were in rebellion against God. And as someone once put it, Jonah needed Nineveh as much as Nineveh needed Jonah. It's true, isn't it? Again, look at the commands here. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Pretty simple, the commands that we see in these first two verses. Arise, go, cry against. And at this point, Jonah doesn't reveal what the message really is that he's supposed to speak. But we know one thing. It's a far cry from God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the message that Jonah is going to give this wicked city, is it? He's told to go and cry out against it. All the articles that you read, all the books that you read on evangelism today, every sermon that you hear would say to you today that that is not the way to win people to Christ. What does the Bible say? 
What was Jesus' first message when he started out in his ministry? It was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John the Baptist's ministry and message as well. No, God doesn't call him to cry out, God has a, loves you and have a wonderful plan for your life. He's told to go and cry against it, and we get a clue from chapter 3, verse 4, what that, mem- what that message was really about. Look at that, chapter 3, verse 4 of Jonah. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. James Edwards, in his book, The Divine Intruder, says one of the surprising truths of the Bible is that God is not necessarily nice. How many of you believe that? One person's got their hand up nice and high, and that's true, isn't it? He's love, but that's not always nice, is it? We like to imagine a God who champions our rights, says Edwards, who exists for the purpose of our self-fulfillment and prosperity, a God who holds people accountable to a standard that differs from their own will or who demands obedience to a revealed will that confronts and conflicts with their selfish pleasures is less attractive to them. Such may be the God we would choose in order to satisfy our wills and lusts. But the God of steadfast love, the Lord of heaven and earth, he says, is not, is not a God of benign neglect. Nor does he exist simply to serve our own happiness. If the happiness of others is our sole concern, then it's probably safe to say that we care very little for them. No one, I wager, ever thought of the cross of Jesus Christ as nice. But it does reveal the extent of God's love for the world and his willingness to make payment for its evil, unquote. That's a mouthful, isn't it? See, God wanted Jonah to speak for him. But he wasn't calling Jonah to write a best-selling book proclaiming your best life now. Or think better, live better. God wanted Jonah to speak the hard truth of his judgment on sin to a nation totally immersed in violence against God. And after all, that was a prophet's mission, wasn't it? And who ever heard of a prophet of God who did not preach the truth? If they don't, they're not a prophet of God. It's a simple task. It's a simple message that God gives to Jonah. Arise, go, cry out. But you know what Jonah was doing, don't you? Jonah was putting limits on where he would go and who he would preach to. And here's where more conviction sets into my heart. And it should be to yours as well. Because we do the same thing. And here is the crux of Jonah's internal conflict. Jonah seeks to hold the title role in his story. Nineveh is the place that when when the God phone rings, you ignore that call. You let it go to voicemail. You pretend that you didn't hear it, but the fact is that Jonah did hear it here, didn't he? Says it very clearly, loud and clear. And no amount of playing ignorant would get Jonah off the hook. Let me ask you a question. 
Where is that place for you? Where is that place for you? God's call to Nineveh was inescapable for for Jonah. Do you think that ours will be any different? So I ask you again to consider as we leave, as we left it last time, who it is that has the title role in the story of your life? Is it you or is it God? Who has the title role in the book of Jonah? God, not Jonah, even though the book's entitled Jonah. Listen, friends, when God calls you to something new, as I said last week, he's always up to something good. And when he calls you, moves you towards something hard, he's usually about to accomplish something great, isn't he? But those truths don't always alleviate the wrestling match that we have in our experience. In Jonah's case, they just enhanced that struggle. So let's move on to verse 3 and look at the internal conflict. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here's the compromising action here. Don't you love it when you read these verses like this? But Jonah. But Jonah. Scary terms. But Jonah. But Russ. You put your name in there. Immediately you know that Jonah's at odds with God. Jonah is the patron saint of the refused call. He rose all right, but not in partial obedience, but in personal defiance. Look at what it says here. God says, arise, and it says, but Jonah rose. God says, go to Nineveh, but but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. He rose to run. He rose to flee instead of follow. And the matter of the fact of the matter is here is that to flee away from God, mark this one now, to flee away from God is to rise up in conflict against him. In essence, Jonah's saying that his way of navigation is better than God's. And we do this more often than we care to admit, don't we? Every time that we sin, we do that very thing, don't we? Every time we act on some decision that is counter to the word of God, no matter how harmless or small it may seem to us, it's flat-out rebellion to God. Do any of us really get that, grasp that? Let me put this thought in your head, because I really love this thought. That if everyone actually decided that God's way was the right way, that God's call was the right call in every circumstance, and they followed it, do you know that every human problem on earth would come to an end? At the heart of every human problem, is our desire to be our own God. 
And you know as well as I do, as one writer reminds us, that there's only been one person in all of human history who concluded at every point in his life and in every way that God's way is always best and God's way is always right and followed that way. You know who that was? It was Jesus. And that because of Jesus and because of what he did, every human problem will someday come to an end, won't it? But Jonah's not following here. Jonah's fleeing. And what does it say? He's fleeing? Tell me, what's, what's he fleeing from? Away from the presence of God. Remember what David prayed in Psalm 51? Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Right? Not, Jonah's not doing that. Jonah's running from the presence. And you know, it's important that we understand that because it's repeated three times in this chapter. In verse 3, twice in verse 3, and then once in verse five, uh, 10. Fleeing from the presence of the Lord. That's an interesting thought to me. I don't know if you've thought about that or not. But do you think that as a prophet of God that Jonah really felt that he could outrun the omnipresent and all-powerful God? Do you think he could? Do you think he was thinking that? That he could hide from God? What was he thinking? Well, it's clear from his prayer in chapter 2 that he was familiar with the Psalms because in chapter 2, when we get there, you're going to find that there's a lot of quotation Quotations from the Psalms there. But he must have known the truth of Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, which read like this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy right hand shall lead me. Right? Your right hand will lay hold of me even there. Listen, folks, if you think you can hide from God, think again. You can run for a little while if he lets you, but you can't hide. No way. You know why? Because we're never out of his presence. We are never out of his presence. He sees everything right down to the very dark, deep corners of our soul that we tend to try to hide from everybody, even hide from ourselves, but we can't hide them from God. Because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. So if that's true, and Jonah probably knew that, what in the world does the phrase mean, Jonah fleed away from the presence of the Lord? Have you meditated on that at all? Maybe he was talking about his felt presence. Maybe it was from a place where God was working out his purposes. That he was fleeing. Maybe it referred to the place where God's manifest presence and his glory dwelt in the temple in the land of Israel. So, tantamount to, uh, you know, what, God, what Jonah's really saying here is that he was fleeing from the land of God, the land of Israel, the temple. 
I think all of those things may have been in Jonah's mind to some extent. But ultimately, I think, you know what he was doing? I think he's handing in his resignation. I quit. That's what you want me to do? Not interested. Jonah was quitting the ministry. He was running away from his call to duty. He was running from the word of God. He was running from the will of God. And he was running from his mission from God. Jonah was exhibiting what one author refers to as tribal-mindedness versus mission-mindedness. Think about that for a minute. Tribal-mindedness versus mission-mindedness. Tribal-minded people carry an air of superiority about them. Jonah wasn't interested in the possibility that that God would save those heathen Ninevites, was he? All he was interested in were his people. The Jews were God's chosen people. He didn't want these Ninevites who were violent against the Jews to come into the kingdom. They were scary people. They were violent people. You know, they probably had tattoos and piercings all over their bodies, wild hair, black lipstick, spiked collars, and hated religious people. In fact, they ate prophets for breakfast. Literally. Well, it might have been self-protection that caused Jonah to run, but I think it was more the fact that he knew that if this was God's will for him to go, that it wasn't the fear of death that caused him to run, but the fear of that those people might repent, might be forgiven, they might get saved, and they might receive God's bountiful mercy instead of his judgment, which in his opinion they didn't deserve, But not only that, now he'd have to put up with them in the family. As if Jonah deserved it. You know, Jonah was being tribal-minded, not mission-minded. You know that attitude, right? Us four, no more. And don't we do the same exact thing Don't we do the same exact thing? Mission-minded people, however, move. I I do it. I'm not standing here, you know, preaching to you that there's nothing that I can't apply to me. It's the same deal. Struggle with that all the time. Mission-minded people move in the direction of those who are not like them. You have a hard time with that too? I do. They understand the heart of God for the lost. I ran across a great picture of the difference between mission-mindedness and tribal-mindedness, as one author described it, after receiving a note from his good friend named Mike about a conversation that Mike had with his wife, Nicole. This is how the conversation went. The The note read like this. Nicole and I were downtown Fort Lauderdale today. As we were leaving, we passed a park. It was a really nice park. But there was a whole group of homeless people hanging out there. And I commented to Nicole that as nice as that park was, I wouldn't be able to just go there and walk with the kids through the park if we lived down there. You know what her response was to me? And it stung. Nicole said, yes, you would. You'd just have to go into the park for a different reason. You could go there and pass out bag lunches. 
And then she said this, quote, Christians need to remember that given God's mission, they exist for the city. The city doesn't exist for them. Unquote. Oh, that hurt again. Yeah, I don't like preaching this book. This is exactly why I probably shied away from it. Because I am Jonah. Aren't you? This is going to be a long few weeks, I can tell. Now, we usually have a great sense of God's presence when we're on mission, don't we? You feel God with you, right? Feel like you're on God's team. Everything's gelling nicely. It's interesting that Jonah was fleeing from that, God's presence. It's interesting that the original Hebrew of verse 3 can be literally translated like this. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the face of the Lord. That gives it a little more color, doesn't it? God's face was oriented toward where? Nineveh. He was looking to Nineveh right now. But Jonah intentionally turned his back where God's face was facing. And here's the clarifying choice right here in verse 3. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Jonah decides to alter God's travel plans. And Tarshish is his choice destination. If God was going to Nineveh, Jonah was going to Tarshish. In the exact opposite direction. As far away as he could get. And you know, you hear people say that. You hear preachers say that. As far away as he could get. That's literally true. You know the story, right? Tarshish is 2,000 miles west of Palestine, across the ocean to Spain. Basically, that was the farthest border of the known world at the time. Jonah's going, I'm going to the other end of this world. Nineveh, however, is 500 miles northeast inland. Jonah decides that He'd rather be 2,500 miles out of God's will than 500 miles in it. How far would you go? How far do I go? Look at the deliberate counteraction here in the second half of verse 3. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, Again, from the presence of the Lord. Now, you can't get around the deliberateness here in this verse of Jonah's choices, can you? Notice the multiple verbs in this verse. He rose up to flee. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship and he paid the fare. And then he went down into it. Jonah was deliberately counteracting what God wanted. And in the words of James McDonald, every day of rebellion kicks out another plank in the walkway back to God. Every day of rebellion does that. Again, the further your rebellion goes, the harder it is to get back. 
Notice the downward spiral of his rebellion. This is pretty cool. More than one preacher, you know, has noted the fact that Jonah's journey away from God was a downward spiral. It was a downward journey. It's evident throughout the entire narrative. As you read through it, you can highlight these things. Jonah went down to Joppa in verse 3. He went down into the ship in verse 3. He went, had, he went and gone down into the hold of the ship even further in verse 5. He went down into the sea when they threw him overboard. He went down into the belly of the fish in verse 17. While inside the fish, he went down into the depths of despair, as chapter 2 shows us. And at the end of the book, still arguing with God, he's sinking down, down, down in the throes of depression. He says, I'd rather die. Just kill me now, Lord, than let me put up with these repentant Ninevites. You catch the pattern here? Down, down, down. The downward descent of spiritual disobedience is a very slippery slope, isn't it? And you know something about when you're going downhill? You know what? It's easy to pick up speed. Easy to pick up speed. Before you know it, your circumstances gain momentum. They take on a life of their own. And if you're not careful, your spiral down might just fling you out of the picture altogether. God might take you out. Well, that's what happens when you continue to run from God because the longer your rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back. And there are plenty of biblical examples which testify to that principle. Distancing ourselves from God always produces spiritual regression. Let me say that again. Distancing ourselves from God always produces spiritual regression. In other words, error increases with distance. You've heard me say that before. So Jonah goes to Joppa, a major port of harbor. He finds a ship going out to Tarshish, the other end of the earth, which, by the way, was probably not very commonplace. Think about that. There's a ship at Joppa from Tarshish waiting to go. It's not like taking the cat out of Portland to Nova Scotia. Doesn't happen every day. It's not a ship from Tarshish in Joppa every single day. In addition, Jonah had enough cash to pay the fare, and there was another opening for another passenger. What are the chances of this happening? Fact is, not a lot of Jews, and especially not many prophets, could have done what Jonah did. You know why? Because money at that time was very scarce. Most people in the Jewish system lived on a barter system. Jonah had the cash. And that's something to consider as well. Money gives us options, doesn't it? Makes it easier for us to think, to think that we can sidestep God's will. Tarshish was also the opposite of Nineveh as a city. Nineveh was a military center. Tarshish was a city of wealth, full of resources, full of new trade, new technology. Not a bad thing, but it can also foster a bit of pride and arrogance, can it? Actually, the Bible reveals that the ships of Tarshish became symbols of wealth and self-sufficiency 
and pride and power and privilege against God, which God had pronounced his great displeasure. You can read it in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. Actually mentions the ships of Tarshish. One pastor commented this way. He said, Jonah ran away to Wall Street. He was running to Madison Avenue, to Silicon Valley. And he said, he follows up with this. People have headed for that ship for a long, long time. How many pastors have made that mistake? I've been tempted. They know God is calling them to a small town church where ministry is hard and resources are scarce or an inner city ministry where people are very hard but turn it down waiting for the mothership to arrive and shuttle them to megachurch central where things are happening. I've talked to more than one young pastor that has actually said those words. Jonah thinks he's running towards safety, mind you. But maybe what really looks safe from a human perspective is not actually safe at all. Maybe the only safe place is to be in the will of God for your life, even if it means choosing to go to Nineveh, that scary place that nobody wants to go. The fact is, Jonah would have been a hundred times safer in a city of Nineveh, surrounded by a half million angry, screaming pagans, and in God's will than he was in a boat heading 2,000 miles away from God's will. But you know, we can always rationalize our decision to disobey God, can't we? We can. When we decide to run from God, there's always a ship ready to take us to Tarshish, isn't there? When you want to run, let me tell you folks, Satan is more than happy to provide us the way of escape. He'll make transportation available to you. And God may allow it because God's not finished with us yet, right? He wasn't done with Jonah. No, 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 no. As we get into this book, you're going to find out that God was just starting with Jonah. Jonah found the ship all right. He had the cash. He booked a bed and his conscience, believe it or not, was so clear or so he convinced himself that he could even sleep through a storm, as we're going to see next time. He was so far away from God at this point that both his mind and his heart were being compromised. Warren Wiersbe reminds us that, quote, it is possible to be out of the will of God and still have circumstances appear to be working on your behalf, unquote. Jonah could have rationalized that it was, if it wasn't God's will for him to go to Tarshish, that none of these open doors would have presented themselves, right? After all, he seemed to have peace in his heart about it. And that's the be-all, end-all, isn't it? I got peace in my heart about this decision. Must be God's will. Well, Jonah's there to testify that that's not always true, is it? Don't be fooled, because when you're running from God, no cleverly arranged set of favorable circumstances can override what God has clearly said to you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. And this ship to Tarshish and out of God's will might look pretty attractive right now, but it's heading into the perfect storm, isn't it? 
Verse 4, the divine consequences, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Here we go. Jonah was far from God, but I'll tell you one thing, as we're going to see throughout this book, God was never far from Jonah. Never. He was with him at every turn. God is a relentless pursuer of his prodigal children. He will never let them go. I hope I don't embarrass her, but she's given this testimony before, but I'm just going to point out. When my daughter was in rebellion for those 10 years, flat-out rebellion, she couldn't run far enough to get away from God because we would find out from other people that every place that she ran to, every place that she lived, God put a Christian in her life somewhere. We found this out later, much later. What an amazing thing, huh? When God pursues his prodigal children. Sometimes he lets us get blown way off course. Sometimes he gives us the freedom to mess up our own lives. Yet even in the midst of our flat-out rebellion, he's working to bring us back to himself because that's what God does. Now, Henry, that was a perfect illustration this morning of John Newton. Couldn't have been better. This is what God does. He'll use all kinds of things. He'll use all kinds of circumstances. He'll use all kinds of people to finally get us where he wants us. And that's what I call not just amazing grace, but outrageous grace. Read a story. This is actually true. Mark Buchanan writes in Your God Too Safe that he had heard Paul Yonggi Cho speak a few years back. And Yonggi Cho at that time was a pastor of the largest church in the world. Several years ago, as his ministry was becoming international, he told God, I'll go anywhere to preach the gospel that you want me to go, except Japan. <laughs> I remember saying that when I first got saved. Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do, but just don't make me be a pastor. <laughs> Some. Sometimes I still say it. No. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so I'll go anywhere you want me to preach. Just don't send me to Japan. So he hated the Japanese with gut deep loathing because of what the Japanese troops had done to the Korean people and to the member of Yonggi Cho's own family during World War II. See, for him, the Japanese were his Ninevites. Through a combination of a prolonged inner struggle, several direct challenges from other people, and finally an urgent and starkly worded invitation, Cho felt called by God to preach in Japan. He went, but he went with bitterness. And the first speaking engagement was to a pastor's conference. A thousand Japanese pastors... Cho stood up to speak, and what came out of his mouth was this. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then he absolutely broke, and he began to weep. He was both brimming and desolate with hatred. And then at first one, and then two, and then finally, all thousand pastors stood up, and one by one, they walked up to Paul Yonggi Cho, knelt at his feet, and 
asked his forgiveness for what they had, their people had done to him and his people. And as this went on, God changed Yonggi Cho. The Lord put a single message in his heart and in his mouth. I love you. I love you. I love you. Sometimes God calls us to do what we least want to do in order to reveal what's really in our hearts. What's in your heart this morning? As we finish, I'm going to ask you a handful of questions that I encountered and wrestled with this week that really feed into this whole thing about where our heart is. Especially in the wake of celebrating communion this morning and what Christ did for us. He went to the cross. He shed his blood. Took away our stony heart of flesh, uh, heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. God knows every part about our hearts. But you also got to know something about the heart of God, that he loved us so much that he gave us his only son to go to the cross and die, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. And then he says, when you do that, I'll give you a new heart. You'll be a new person. But the things you need to do first before that happens, you need to be willing to turn from your sins. Stop running from God, but run toward God. That's called repentance, by the way. And that's all repentance means. It means changing your mind and changing your direction. And the second thing is, you need to commit and surrender your life to Christ. By that, I mean you, you must first commit yourself that Christ is your Lord and your Savior. And he's your Lord, meaning that wherever you tell me to go, I'm going to go. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. And then the third thing is you need to be willing to follow him and acknowledge who he is, Lord. So what's the condition of your heart? Let me ask you these questions. In light of all of that, how powerful and extensive do you think the blood of Christ is? What are the limits of his forgiveness? Are there any? And this is an important one. How far does the gospel of peace and the ministry of reconciliation reach? How far do you think that it reaches? To Nineveh? To the LGBTQA community? To your estranged spouse? Or maybe just as far as the brother or sister that you're avoiding contact with. How far does Christ's ministry reach? Well, I think Jonah could tell you. Jesus definitely would tell you. But are we going to be willing to hear it? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for such an incredible life that you have preserved in the Scripture for us to show us some very hard things, but also some very good things about how you relentlessly pursue us and how you never give up on us. 
So God, I pray today that if you are pursuing anybody in this congregation, myself included, and we happen to be in one stage of running away or another, God, may the words of your truth and may the power of your Holy Spirit grip us, grip our hearts, and turn us back. For that's what you desire. I pray it in the name of Christ, your Son, and our Lord and Savior. Amen.